Well, I'd like you to turn with me now to uh, Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1, so you're wondering where that is, I suppose. Uh, so if you find Ezekiel, if you're flicking through, Ezekiel, oh, let's go, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, I think. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Tricky, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, Joel. And then it's Amos. So I was wondering where Amos was. Amos is afterwards, so if you've gone too far. You found Amos. Joel, chapter 1. Before we read, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your words, and we ask that as we come to your words and uh, we want to pay attention to it, we pray, give us hearts that are willing to, to do all you say, ears that are willing to hear, eyes that are willing to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Joel chapter 1. The words of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord and ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a, sol- call, sol- call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and to cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down. Because the grain has dried up, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed, because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. 
To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So for four weeks this month, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Joel. Joel. Um, and one of the interesting features of Joel, it's only three chapters long, one of the interesting features about Joel is that there's nothing in the book that uh, indicates when it was written. Um, neither he nor his father can be identified from other parts of the Bible, so we don't know which Joel it is. And often prophets will refer to uh, kings who are on the throne at the time, so you can relate it to the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles, um, but not Joel. Joel doesn't say anything about the kings that are ruling at the time. And there's no reference to any particular clearly identifiable great event in the history of Jerusalem and Judah or Israel. And it's because of this scholars have uh, widely differing views on when this book was written. Uh, some suggest a very early date, 900 BC, uh, 100 years after David. Uh, and maybe Joel was a contemporary of Elijah, one of the earlier prophets. On the other hand, those others think that uh, he was writing after the exile, so remember the, the period of exile, around about 600 BC, there were a number of movements of people from Israel to, into exile, uh, culminating in the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 586 BC and being taken off to Babylon. And, um, and maybe Joel was writing after that. Maybe he was writing, say some scholars, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah as they were back and rebuilding uh, the destroyed city of Jerusalem. But you can see there's hundreds of years between those options. One thing that seems to be true about the dating of books of the Bible is that the less you know for sure about it, the more people write about it. So you can wade through pages and pages and pages of all the contrary arguments as to when, when he was writing. Uh, but you know, there comes a point where you just have to stand back and begin to look at the bigger picture. And ask the question, why is it so difficult? Why, why, is, why does God, why has God seen fit not to tell us when this was written? Why has he not tied it to a particular historical event? And the reason I think is that this message from a man who seems to, as it were, come out of nowhere at no particular time, has a message that is applicable to all times. To all times of the people of God. Even to the New Testament church. Even to us today, as we meet as a local expression of that New Testament church. What we do know about this book is that Joel seems to be ministering in and around Jerusalem at the time. And that the practical problem that is afflicting Jerusalem and Judah 
is that a plague of locusts has come and caused utter devastation. Uh, now, locusts were, of course, a, a common problem, so we can't identify that, even use that to identify a particular time because it happened all the time. Locusts came and went. And the thing about locusts is when the conditions are right, they, they multiply enormously. So a single, uh, a single locust uh, lays eggs three times in its lifetime, apparently. I looked this up. <laughs> three times in its lifetime. Each time it lays about 100 eggs. And so a, a single locust can produce 300 offspring. And the regeneration time is, is quick enough that within a, over a period of about three, three months, literally millions of offspring can have come from a single locust. Uh, and when the conditions are right, the, these swarms uh, develop very quickly and can last a long time. Uh, one commentator, I, uh, he put a quote in of uh, someone who commented on a swarm of locusts in the 1920s in West, in West Africa. He said this, in 1926 and 27, small swarms of, of the African migratory locusts were spotted in an area 50 by 100 miles on the plains of the river Niger, Niger uh, near Timbuktu. That's in Mali in West Africa. The next year, swarms invaded Senegal and Sierra Leone. By 1930, swarms had reached Khartoum, more than 2,000 miles to the east of Timbuktu. Khartoum's in Sudan. Um, and then turned south, spreading across Ethiopia, Kenya, Belgian Congo, and in 1932, striking the lush farmland of Angola and Rhodesia, which is way to the south. Before the plague finally sputtered out, 14 years after it began, it affected 5 million square miles of Africa, nearly double the size of the United States. Swarm of locusts can wreak terrible uh, disaster on economies, on peoples. Um, So you get the idea? Uh, A swarm of locusts has affected the people of God here in Joel. And the devastation is enormous. If you just look at verses, verses 4, 6, and 7, uh, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten, what the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten, what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is just a, a poetic way of saying over and over again, these, all these locusts come and they eat, eat everything. And so verse 6 says, a nation has come out. And so he's using the language of like an, an enemy nation coming. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. Not literally, it's a metaphor. But, you know, there's little teeth nibbling everything and eating everything. And uh, it has fangs of a lioness and has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree, uh, stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. You, you're pu- pulling the bark off the branches to leave the white insides of the branches. It's just utter devastation. And I don't know if you noticed, but everything is disrupted. Even worship is disrupted. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. 
And the mood of the people changes. Verse 12, halfway through. Gladness dries up from the children of man. Or verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. And then the the animals suffer. Verse 18. How the beasts grow and the herds of the cattle are perplexed. There's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And the question that Joel brings to this situation is, where is God in all this? It's, rather, it's not that question, where is God in all this? That's the question we always, we always want to ask. Where is God in the tragedy of my life? Where is God in all the problems that I face? But that's not the question that Joel is asking. Rather, he, implicit in this is a question that comes from God. When are you going to turn to God? Where have you been all this time? What have you been trusting in? In this time leading up to the disaster that has now befallen you. See, God is asking the question. Of the people. And you see, there's there's no particular or obvious appalling sin that is even mentioned in this book. But what is implied here is that here we have a people who, when times have been good and comfortable, they have simply ceased to trust in the living God taken him for granted. And they've gone through their religious processes. They still go to worship. They still bring their offerings. But they have forgotten God. They have lost their fear of the almighty God. And so this swarm of locusts comes by the mighty hand of God. To take away all that they have begun to trust in instead. In order to bring to their attention that God alone is the one who deserves their trust. Now, seen in that light, I hope you can begin to see that disaster actually comes to the people of God here as an act of loving grace. Does that sound contradictory? Why? Because he is seeking to get their attention so that they can put their trust in him and find all their satisfaction in him. And be filled with the hope of the future that he wants to give them. And we'll come to that as we go through the book. So friends, who who or what are you trusting in this morning? What are you trusting in? Well, through Joel, God God calls the elders and the inhabitants at the beginning of this chapter to give ear, to listen, and to learn the lessons of what has happened to them so that they can pass it down through the generations. It's not just the event itself that he wants to pass down the generations, but he wants to pass down this trusting in God 
in the midst of all circumstances, children, you need to trust God above all things. Well, God, through Joel, uh, calls the elders and the inhabitants to, to give ear and, and to do a number of things. What does he tell the people to do? Well, I think there are four groups of people that are mentioned that are headed by uh, four imperatives that uh, appear in this book, uh, roughly grouping four groups of people. And uh, God tells these people what they should be doing. In the, in the face of this disaster. And the first is, in verse 5, awake. And the people he's addressing are the drunkards and the drinkers of wine. Now I think there's a couple of, you can tease it out a little bit, there's a, there's a couple of groups here. Um, there are the drunkards, the alcoholics, the people who have become habituated to getting drunk on the wine and the produce of the land. And as happens so often, people get addicted to alcohol. And, and they do so to the point where they cannot see the damage that has been done in their lives and to others around them. That's the tragedy of uh, Persistent, chronic drunkenness. And it is the most appalling thing to see. To see someone so enthralled to a substance that they can't see anything else. So that's one, one group. The other group. There is another group though. And th- this is a group that may not get drunk. But they're drinkers of wine. They may seem to have it under control. But I think that what's being described here is people who have come to love uh, the finer things in life. You know, we just surround ourselves with with, with fine things of life. We'll we'll live for a a lovely, comfortable life with plenty of wine on tap and uh, plenty of nice food and uh, plenty of things. We we can have as much as we want. I'm rich enough and... well enough, you know, so much that we can have, and just let, let's just surround ourselves with all this stuff. Let's just enjoy it. And it's not that necessarily any of that's bad in itself, but what they're addicted to is the pursuit of pleasure. That before God, instead of God, they're living their lives pursuing pleasure. And filling their lives with pleasurable things. What more pleasurable things can I bring into my life? How can I spend my money in a way that brings me more pleasure? How can I access all of that? And their lives, you know, this this is people whose lives are are filled with a parade of pleasures at every spare moment. And God says, wake up. Wake up. Can't you see what's happening in your life, that you're either addicted to wine or addicted to the pleasures of life, and you have forgotten God. And you forget God every day and every moment. Let me ask you this morning, you this morning, I asked myself this this morning too, what would you do if every nice, pleasurable thing was taken out of your life and all you had was God? Would you be disappointed? 
Would you find or seek to find your pleasure in him? Would you find yourself actually addicted to him? Or would you find yourself angry at the loss of all the pleasures around you in the midst of all your destitution? Oh, how we need to wake up in our day. How we need to come to God that he might maybe shake us from our slumber, wake up. (laughs) Take us by the shoulders and wake us up. I think God wants to do that with us today. Take us by the shoulders and say, wake up. Wake up. Look around you. See your life and what it's really worth. Here's the second imperative. Verse 8. Lament. To lament as somebody who has... To lament is to mourn as somebody who who has lost something. And uh, the picture painted here, I think, is especially tragic, verse 8. He uses a simile of a a virgin or a young woman who's just got married, but who for some unexplained reason has lost her husband. Who's died or been killed. And, And all her plans, all her hopes... All her dreams about how life was going to, going to pan out for her have all been dashed and come to nothing. That's, that's a shocking story, isn't it? Oh, the joy of a wedding. Oh, the joy of seeing two people getting married together and uh, everybody's happy and smiling and then suddenly one of them's gone. And everything's changed tragedy but that's the story of so many people who have forgotten God who have built their lives on other aspects of life and they have a, they have a job, they have a career or they have some money and they have, or they have a house or they, or they, they have love and friendship and in their mind's eye they can see their lives mapped out before them, I can see how my life is going to work out you young people you come to the close of your education, you're thinking about your future, and you think, I'm going to follow this career, I'm going to have this car, I'm going to have this, this job, I'm going to have maybe this house, I'm going to live in this wonderful place. I've got all these plans. And in an instant, it can come to nothing. Under the hand of God, disaster strikes. And then you realize that all your hopes and all your dreams have been built on sinking sand. And the message here is for the, people, for the people of God is lament, not just because you've lost all those things. Lament that you have forgotten God in all those false hopes and false dreams. What, what are you trusting in this morning? Where are your hopes today? Here's a, here's a third imperative, verse 11. Be ashamed. And here, this is addressed particularly to uh, workers. In this case, the workers of the soil, the, the vine dressers, the, the harvesters. But you can just, you can imagine these workers in that time, you know, uh, just before the locusts came and 
Uh, everything is fruitful. You know, this is the land of milk and honey, isn't it? It's, it's the, the fruitful land. It's the beautiful land. And everything is growing and there's so much produce. And, you know, you gather it in with joy and gladness in your heart. And you, you put it in the storehouses. And then you take it all to market and you have plenty of money coming in. And uh, you have the good life. And the workers are happy. Everybody's happy. You put the hours in. You can reap the rewards. Is this not the story of many people, even Christian people today? Even, perhaps especially young ones. I remember when I finished my education in Glasgow, uh, along with my friends, uh, we were thrust into new jobs. I was a young man then. And uh, all these friends of ours were at new jobs, and some of them were high-powered jobs, and some of them were high-powered jobs in the city of Glasgow. And uh, they had great jobs, and, uh, uh, but they, they had to pay for it. They had to work hard. You know, long, 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 long hours. Uh, as a, as a, meager, a mere academic who had not so much money, and you know, I could control my hours, but... Uh, for, for some of those lawyers and some of those uh, finance people and v- very posh people that get really fancy jobs, they have to put in the hours. And if you were willing to put in the hours, the sky's the limit for you and your career. But a significant proportion of my Christian friends, the ones I remember, who got into those kinds of positions have since lost their way spiritually. They lost their way very early on. Because they forgot God. Gave themselves to their jobs and their careers. Friends, this is the danger of work and the rewards of work. And the warning here is that none of it is secure. At any moment, God in his holy, wise goodness, yes, goodness, can take it away. And what are you left with? What are you trusting in this morning? Only God is the rock upon which to build your life and his salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. The only sure and certain way through this life. So what are you trusting in this morning? Here's the last imperative. And here, uh, in verse 13 onwards, 13 and 14 is really an extended imperative. But he's addressing the spiritual leaders of the people. To the priests, to the ministers of the altar. And you see, one of the ways that, as we've noted, one of the ways that this plague of locusts has affected things is to make it impossible for the people to bring drink offerings and grain offerings as part of their worship to God. What a strange thing, that God would bring a, a plague of locusts that stops the worship of God. What a weird thing. Why would God do such a thing? He commands worship, doesn't he? Why does he not create the conditions so that worship can always happen? Yet in his providence here, he makes it impossible for the people to properly worship God. Well, I can, I can think of a particular reason drawn from the other prophets. 
God does indeed want the worship of his people, but he doesn't want the kind of worship where the people who participate in it are simply going through the motions. Do you understand the difference? You can come to church and go through the go through the motions of the singing and bowing your head and so on, and listening, or looking as though you're listening. <laughs> you can go through the motions. But there are times in the Bible where God looks at that and he says, I don't want that. Take Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When will you come to appear before me? Who has required, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? God doesn't just want the externals. He wants you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want you just come trampling around here. Just doing your stuff. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants everything about you. I'll read further on in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. What's the issue here? A kind of fake religion that's only skin deep. And then in this particular case, even that is taken away by God. That's what God is doing here. He is taking away the fake religion. And the spiritual leaders are to lead in lamenting and mourning the loss of worship. They are to humble themselves before everyone else and lead others. They are to call a fast. They are to call the people to gather together, to join with them in crying out to God. That's a word for our day, isn't it? I certainly feel the weight of that as one of your spiritual leaders in this church. In this, this last 18 months, the leaders of Christ church should, should not simply have been trying to find technological ways to have so-called online worship, which we have done. to solve the problems, just fix the problems. But rather, we should have been, and some of us have been asking, why is it that God, in his providence, has allowed so many restrictions to inhibit so much of our work. And look, I'm not talking about whether or not you agree with what the government has done. That's not the issue. The fact is, we have been under restrictions and we need to ask the spiritual question. Why is it that God has permitted such things? And the leaders of Christ's church should have been calling out to God and calling the people to join with them in crying out for mercy and seeking God's face to restore vibrant fellowship with him that has been lost in the so-called good times. How complacent we have been as a church across this land, across the country. So complacent. And now the big shakeout's happening. The mainline denominations are in this country are, 
are planning for 20, 30% reduction in the numbers of people coming. Because they know that people just will not come back. This is the shakeout. Is it, is it any wonder that the church in this country has been declining for decades? It's as though the locusts, if you like, have been at work for decades, and only now are we beginning to see the, the devastation that has been caused after this pandemic. Maybe the locusts are here present in this church, nibbling away at your heart and maybe mine. Or maybe for some of us, worship has become a shell of a task. Where prayer, especially with other Christians, isn't even on the radar for us. Where true gladness and joy in the Lord has dried up. Where joy and gladness has been cut off from the house of our God. So Joel, as we come to the end of the chapter, he leads the response. He is God's prophet. And in verse 19, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. I call. Whatever else anyone else is doing, I'm going to lead in this call to the Lord. This is the one, I think, verse 19 is the one positive, the first line of it is the one positive note in this litany of misery that we find in this chapter. To you, Lord, I will call. And it reminds us that in the midst of difficult times, the Lord, as we are, holds out his arms to, to his people and says, there's always a way back if you will just come. That's what God wants. And we know this because of the promises God has made to Israel throughout its checkered history. Even in the midst of the wilderness during the Exodus. And remember that after that debacle of the, of the golden calf episode where they decide, in, in all their wisdom, the people decide when Moses was up the mountain, they decide, well, let's just make a calf. Let's make it out of gold. Let's, let's get all our gold together and let's melt it down and, and make this wonderful calf and we can dance around it and worship the Lord, apparently, because that's honoring God, isn't it? We do what we like. God is horrified by it. And yet, even after that, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the promise of God comes again to his people, his aberrant people, his delinquent people. He says, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Just come to me. Come, follow me. See, with God, there may be chastising times. But they are for our good to draw us back to him. So who are you trusting in this morning? Who are you trusting? What are you trusting in? Have you drifted off track? Are you giving your heart to some other hope or aspiration in life? Come back to God. Call upon him. Awake. Wake up. Lament. Be ashamed, gather with the people of God, and let's discover that he is gracious to us and merciful. Let's pray. Father, 
open up our hearts, we pray, to see how it is that we are putting our trust in perhaps other things. But more importantly, let us turn to you. Discover the glory of your gospel, the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom are found the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel and Judah in the past. Father, help us to go to him. For Jesus' sake. Amen.